0: Media. sure looks like the Supreme Court's going to make it hard for Congress to get a hold of Trump's tax returns. How can there be oversight of Donald Trump? Let's get on topic. to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of The Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before we get to our episode this week, I want to thank our patrons who brought you this episode. With special thanks to Michelle Dew, Eric DeWurst, James Fromier, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie Gordon, Steve Hungsberg, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You can become a patron, too, on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. All one word. Just click the support link at the top of the page. Well, Patty, this is such an important topic because I think a lot of people are convinced that at this point, Donald Trump won't have any oversight uh, unless he, until and unless he's thrown out of office.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a, a significant just a hunger for justice, and that's been true since the very beginning, even before he won. You know, people are, were so fed up with his hubris, with his lying, with what seemed to be a cover up. And then, you know, to perpetuate that throughout his presidency. And now that we're in a crisis, I mean, people just would like some uh, idea that there's going to be justice. Don't you think?
0: I, I think so. I think, you know, I think that part of it too is that people have um, an expectation in, that the legal system in this country is such that if you've done something wrong, and that's broadly defined by a lot of folks that, oh, you're going to get caught, you're going to get punished. You know, in most people's minds that if you do something that's wrong, you're going to go to jail or there's going to be some severe consequences. And I think uh, for a lot of people over the last few years, they've learned some tough lessons, which is that, You know, first of all, not all things that are against the law are crimes. So a lot of things that are against the law aren't even enforceable. And that when the person who is doing committing wrongdoing is the president of the United States, it can be really hard for that person to be held accountable at all.
1: And that's really what it's about is accountability. And I guess, you know, those who would argue on behalf of the president, not just his team, but uh, apparently some of my family members, which is fun, um, <laughs> is <laughs> is that, uh, you know, that he could get away with anything just because he's the president of the United States, that, that as the leader, you know, he can't be held to the same standards as everybody else, I think is appalling to most of us.
0: Well, for sure. I mean, it goes back to Richard Nixon, right, where, uh, you know he said if the president does it then by definition it's not illegal right and and i think that animates some of this here you know uh just uh, today we're recording this on a, on uh a, on uh friday may uh, may 1st you know the the new press secretary said that well, as to the to sexual assault allegations against Trump, the voters spoke, and it was the election that exonerated him, right? And it's the sense that if you're elected president, it washes away your sins, like Pontius Pilate washing uh. his hands, right, of of any blood or whatever. It's 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 the sense that it cleans you. And the the fact of the matter is, um, I think it's going to present some difficult challenges. I mean, what I think is that. Um, it's going to be very hard uh, to get to the bottom of a lot of these things before uh, the um, 2020 election in November. And, you know, if Trump doesn't win, I could I think what may happen is there could be um, revelations over the course of years to come. And it'll be interesting to see um, what prosecutors do, what the, the next administration does, um, re- you know, regarding any sort of investigation into those matters.
1: What, in your uh, opinion, would be the drive? I mean, obviously it's a, you know, if it continues to be a criminal investigation, but once he's not president, what kind of sense of urgency do you think there will be?
0: I don't know. I, I've heard um, I've heard a spectrum on that. In other words, I, I've had some um, lawmakers, uh, people in Congress tell me that they thought the next administration would not go after Trump at all because a new administration... Would want to pass their agenda. Would want to be focused on doing things to help people, and that they know the voters are going to be focused on that and get your results. And that going and really re looking back at, at everything Trump did and looking to the past is going to just take uh, focus and energy away from what the administration's doing. So that 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 lawmaker's view was essentially that nothing's going to happen. Now, I what I think would be from my perspective, um, it, I think it would be hard if if the ju- you, don't, you wouldn't I think there will be some pressure on the next president to look into these matters. And I don't think that person is going to want to say, well, I have decided to exonerate Trump or I mean, you know, well, we're not going to look into it. So I think it'll end up probably being left in my mind to DOJ professionals, uh, career professionals.
1: Right. And again, you know, I don't see, and as you mentioned, there's going to be a drive to recover from this crisis um, that will definitely remove the sense of urgency. Uh, so I don't know. It's uh, and, and not much is going to get done before uh, the general in November.
0: Well, without a doubt. I mean, I think it is, you know, we, we used to joke before this uh, pandemic that you know the news cycle moves so fast. Like, oh my God, it's only Tuesday and all this has happened. Or, you know, can you believe that the whistleblowers report came out? You know, X number of months ago, that sort of thing. And now with the pandemic, things are even more uh, exaggerated in that uh, in that uh, uh, way. I mean, I can't remember right what the conversations were before that. It's, it's like we it's it's taken over everything and it's really transformed our lives in a short period of time. And I, it's hard for me to believe that we will, you know, completely snap out of that by November.
1: I agree. Well, and and we are once again divided, you know, partly geographically, ideologically, in in, in most parts of the country. When it comes to, I mean, the idea that he's holding blue states hostage in order to make them. Uh, and I saw on your on your Twitter feed about sanctuary cities. And, you know, governors who, he, you know, thinks are, are not respectful enough or grateful enough. This is uh, it's mind boggling that we're in this in this position during a crisis when people are dying.
0: It is. And I, and I will say that, you know, a topic that, you know, is is worth examining and, and we may end up examining in the future is, you know, does the president even have the authority to do something like that, to say, I'm not going to send you this funding? Uh, unless you do something that I want, like get rid of sanctuary cities. And the short answer is, you know, Congress in its spending power has the power to attach strings to money that it sends. In other words, Congress can say they have the power of the purse and they can say, we'll send you these highway funds to repair highways in your state if – you make the speed limit fifty-five or something. Right. They actually did that, um, and that's actually an actual example. Uh, and that was the case that went to the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court had some limits around that, and essentially said that you know if it's only when that's the 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 strings are attached to have some relationship with what the money's for. First of all, okay, and second of all, that it's not coercive. That it's not so much money and such a dire thing that it's coercive here. I don't, I don't think, I don't think it would pass that test.
1: Well, okay, and that brings us to something that I know isn't part of the conversation that we're going to be having with our guest. But, uh, you know, I I wonder what it's like in other states, because in Illinois, we obviously, uh, Governor Pritzker, uh, has a very favorable approval rating, as does Mayor Lightfoot. Um, the thing that concerns me is a lack of local representation. You know, the governor has not ha- met, really met with the General Assembly, except for what I understand. One conference call that lasted for about 20 minutes to half an hour And mostly he was, uh, you know, going over things that had already happened in a press conference. I'm just concerned that those that we elected at the local level, state, you know, representatives and senators and at the city level, our city hall, there's a lot of power being given to the executive. And we don't have a checks and balance in place right now. And that's. I think uh, is going unnoticed. And we have a lot of work that needs to be done in reaction to the crisis, but also long term. We have a budget that needs to be passed by the end of May, and that's not going to happen if the General Assembly does not convene. Anyway, that's just uh, one of the things that has struck me during this crisis.
0: I think at the the state or the federal level, when there's a crisis – it typically, uh, the, it's up to the executive to respond, and that's the point at which the executive often gets what it wants and is able to make changes to the law or obtain funding, uh, or other, other things that it wants. And whether it's 9-11 for George W. Bush or the coronavirus crisis for governors, I do think that, that that is the case. Uh, and right now, of course, uh, for the most part, uh, you certainly have lawmakers in most states going along with it, but there are, um there are some uh you know pockets of resistance to that and there are some lawmakers who are asserting themselves uh they all they narrowly escaped a voice vote in congress uh re, you know recently and uh, here in chicago in the city council they uh voted against giving uh, uh the the mayor some additional authority spending authority she wanted so you know i think that it's it's there is starting to become some pushback um, and it'll be interesting to see how that develops between now and November, because it seems to me that the virus and the response of the virus has, be, has sort of dwarfed every other issue now. There really is is right. not another issue in people's minds.
1: I know. And, and in order to recover, we need to start thinking about a lot of those. Obviously, we need to respond so that folks who are afraid of, you know, not being able to buy their groceries or pay their rent. Um, and have employment when this is all over. There are things I think that can be addressed now for the long term. That uh, it just—I I was just a little surprised that that's not being addressed in a more meaningful way.
0: Well, anyway, yeah, that's just me. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've got uh, we've got um, a long road ahead, and obviously, we still have an election that uh, is important. I have been uh, doing what I can. I just uh, did a, a video conference this week for the. Uh, postcards to wisconsin program that indivisible chicago is doing i know there are other uh many other i'm sure many of our listeners are, are getting involved in the upcoming election um you know our last podcast got a lot of reaction in terms of how to best put on an election during a pandemic uh and you know that may uh really change uh and in, inform i think the answer to the ultimate question that we're discussing today which is oversight over donald trump so let me Let me uh, bring in our guest now. Uh, We have a great guest this week. Kate Shaw is a professor of law and the co-director of the Florsheimer Center for Constitutional Democracy at the Benjamin Cardozo School of Law. Uh, Before joining the law school, she worked in the Obama White House Counsel's Office, uh, and she also clerked uh, for Justice John Paul Stevens on the United States Supreme Court, uh, and then as well as Richard Posner on the Court of Appeals. Uh, She is a, a constitutional law scholar And she has written for a a number of popular outlets. And, of course, she's also the Supreme Court contributor for ABC News. So now let's bring in Kate Shaw. Welcome to the podcast, Kate. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: So I have to say I was very surprised to see the Supreme Court uh, ask the parties to brief um, whether or not uh, the issue of um, essentially the enforceability of this uh, subpoena for Trump's tax returns was a political question. And I'm curious, you know, can you, is it maybe as a starting point, can you explain to us exactly what happened this week with that?
2: Sure. So and maybe I'll take a step back and just talk a little bit about the cases in general, just sort of because there are three of them and they present slightly distinct issues. But basically, these are all cases involving subpoenas directed to financial institutions uh, that seek financial records that involve the president. So there's no subpoena that has been issued to the president or any other government entity. Right. These are private institutions. But of course, the president's documents are among the documents that are sought by the subpoenas. So one case involves a subpoena issued by the House Committee on Oversight and Reform. Another one involves a Financial Services Committee subpoena. Um, So those are the two congressional subpoena cases. And then there's a third case actually involving a subpoena from a Manhattan grand jury. Um, In all of those cases, it's actually the president and his private lawyers who have filed lawsuits seeking to block these institutions from complying with the subpoenas, either the congressional subpoenas or the the grand jury subpoena. Uh, And in all of those cases, the president has lost soundly in the lower courts. And of course, now the cases are before the Supreme Court. So the development that you referenced just from the last week is that at the 11th hour, just about two weeks before the arguments are scheduled, the Supreme Court has asked the parties to brief whether these cases, just the congressional cases, not the New York grand jury case, uh, present what's known as a political question, meaning that courts actually can't resolve these cases at all. And I was also really surprised. This is not an argument that really anyone has made in these cases below. And it's hard to see how the, the traditional criteria for determining whether something is a political question would be satisfied here. Uh, so I don't think we should assume that that's what the, case is plan- the court is planning to do, but it certainly suggests that some of the justices might be interested in taking this kind of an off-ramp.
0: Well, let's talk about that because I think for a lot of our listeners, they're like, okay, what is a political question? What does that even mean? So can you explain to us what that means in this context?
2: Absolutely. So there are a certain category of cases uh, that the court, the Supreme Court has basically held uh, present what are called political questions, meaning that courts just can't resolve them at all. Um, and the reason that the court has given that for, for sort of deciding that some cases present political questions um, are in the main twofold. Um, so one, the Constitution has basically given another institution the final authority to answer a particular kind of question, and so courts just have no role to play. Um, so, you know, a, a good example of a case like this is actually um, a case from 1992 involving impeachment procedures. This involved uh, the impeachment of a federal judge, uh, not the impeachment of a president, but this judge basically challenged the procedures that the Senate was using to try him, and the Supreme Court said. It's not really up to us to decide what is fair or proper when it comes to structuring impeachment trials. The Constitution gives the Senate the power to try all impeachments, and the Senate has the power to make its own rules. And whether or not you're happy with the kind of the way the Senate has decided to conduct your trial is sort of between you and the Senate. This is not something for courts to weigh into or to resolve. So that's sort of one category. The Constitution has given another institution or another branch of government the kind of final authority uh, to answer some kind of question. And then the other big category of cases that the court has decided present political questions are cases where the court has said that the questions just don't lend themselves to kind of judicially manageable standards for answering them. So, so some things might be important. Uh, there might be, you know, even sort of wrongs or injustices, but there's no way for courts to fashion rules or doctrine uh, to resolve those kinds of disputes. Um, and so there are other factors or criteria the court has from time to time announced in political question cases, but those I think are the most important ones.
0: Yeah, it, it really uh, to sum it up, I think, for you know, in a, in a way that a person might understand, it's it, to me a political question is where a court is saying something like, you know, "This is beyond our, sort of not the sort of thing that really courts should be taking a look at. This is something that's best left to the political branches." Uh, is is one way of looking at, at at that at that issue, and I think in is a as a practical matter, what it can mean is that a you know that. Courts essentially won't provide relief to whatever party is trying to use the courts to get what it wants. In this case, it would be Congress trying to get um, a, uh, you know, its hands on Donald Trump's tax returns in order to conduct oversight. Essentially, the, the um, courts would be saying in this, in this context, well, there's nothing you can do or there's nothing we can do for you. You're going to have to figure that out for yourself, essentially. Yeah.
2: I mean, yes, no. So so I, all that is definitely right. I mean, the the one question is, you know, it is the president who has actually invoked the authority of the federal courts here, right? The president has gone to court to block compliance with subpoenas rather than Congress having gone to court seeking to enforce its subpoenas. So that, I think, is an important um, sort of question of the posture of the case. Um, You know, because it's actually the case that from at least early in the litigation, um, Mazars, right, one of the recipients of the subpoenas, this is the president's longtime accounting firm, uh, indicated that it stood ready and willing to comply with these congressional subpoenas. So it actually didn't raise any objections on its own. It has said throughout, you know, we'll basically do what you know, whatever we're told to do here um, and filed a statement in the Supreme Court actually saying we're not going to participate at all. So, you know, I, I do think that just, you know, it's an important kind of slightly slight distinction, I think, in framing if Congress was going to court seeking to enforce its subpoenas, which Congress does, uh, and and the court were considering whether to decide this was a political question. And so it really wasn't going to force anybody to comply, then I think a decision that this was a political question would obviously be something that would injure Congress, right, which would undermine its ability to enforce its edicts. Um, but but I think it's a little more complicated here because, you know, if the court were to hold that these cases present political questions and, you know, it's not going to make any sort of ultimate determination about the permissibility of these subpoenas and that they do seek information that includes the president's financial records, Um It's it it may still be the case that actually that's a win for Congress because Congress has issued these subpoenas. The subpoenas carry force on their own. And these banks or these financial institutions, right, because it's Mazars and it's Deutsche Bank, right? These are the entities involved. if if their position hasn't changed, they may decide to just comply with these subpoenas and produce the documents. Um, because, again, it's not it's not that, that they have said we're not going to give you anything unless a court tells us to. Right. Because a congressional subpoena, despite the Trump administration's, you know, um, sort of undermining of this tradition of compliance with subpoenas, subpoenas are typically, you know, they carry the force of law. There, you know, there's a sort of long history here in terms of Congress has arguably um, undermined its own enforcement authority by seeking uh, pretty regularly to go to court to try to enforce its subpoenas or relying on the executive branch to do so. Um, But in theory, even without, you know, getting to Questions about whether the Congress could send a sar- its sergeant at arms uh, or impose fines directly, just by virtue of the legal force that the subpoenas, you know, on their own carry, um, they should require compliance. And and I think there's a very good chance that if this were this case were dismissed as a political question, um, or as a case presenting a political question, these third parties may might well decide to just comply.
0: That's interesting. I I. He had not considered the fact that or the, the, the possibility that a decision that this was a political question could ultimately still result in Congress getting the information it wants. You know, this, I think, brings us to a spot where I, there was a listener, a question that had come up, Patty. Uh, what was that?
1: Well, it's in regards to, you know, if, if it's decided that it's a political question, is there any remedy to enforce a duly enacted statute besides impeachment and and removal? And if that's the only remedy, then how can our system of government even function?
2: Yeah. Well, so, look, I mean, I think that that, that question um, would be a really important one if the subpoenas had been directed to the president. and or to somebody in the executive branch, the treasury secretary. There actually is another case involving a congressional subpoena from the Ways and Means Committee to the treasury secretary directly seeking the president's taxes. But those ca- that case has been um, stayed, I think maybe in January it was stayed. Um, so that's not before the court now. But then I think, so if, say, the court said that's a political question, we'll let Congress and the executive branch work it out, then I do think that that stalemate would hugely redound to the benefit of the executive branch, which would say, sorry, we're not complying with your subpoena. And then I think your listener is probably right to suggest that, you know, the ballot box and impeachment are the main remedies, um, you know, that the political process might offer. And I think there that are softer kind there. Even in those circumstances, there could be softer kinds uh, of tools that Congress could wield. Right. Congress obviously has the power of the purse. Um, Congress could call before various committees. The Treasury Secretary, other members of the administration, to try to, you know, embarrass them or to just seek information about their non-compliance. So there, it's not as though, you know, those are again softer kinds of tools or powers. Um, but, uh, but I think that the the listener raises that I think real concern that um, that for a system in which kind of you know ambition countering ambition, power checking power, that's all really quite central. The idea that Congress would be you know, sort of defanged in its ability to actually compel the production of information or testimony, which has been, you know, extremely well settled, uh, I, I think would be uh, one that, would, that, that might well sort of really empower the president in a way that would upset this kind of delicate balance of powers. But, as I said before, because of these subpoenas are directed to third parties, I think, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily the case that a political question finding clearly benefits the president in this posture.
0: It's interesting, Kate. I mean, I will say that as somebody who's not a Supreme Court uh, a scholar or practitioner in the way that you have been, when I saw the, the fact that the court raised this issue, that the, neither of the parties were had briefed or had raised, neither of the two sides had raised the issue, it seemed to me that there's a pretty strong possibility that the court was going to go that direction. Uh, do you agree with that as somebody who studied the issue?
2: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I didn't see it and conclude that the court will you know, more likely than not decide to resolve the case on those grounds. Um, but, you know, clearly it's the case that four or five justices at a minimum uh, are interested in pursuing that possibility. Um, you know, I think it's, look, it's a really charged set of questions. Um, and it's, you know, an election year and, and, you know, impeachment only a couple of months in the rearview mirror. And I, I think that they would very much like, you um, not to res- to resolve this kind of potentially high stakes dispute, and so they're you know they're exploring this possibility. And look, the political question doctrine, um, you know, it gets more workouts in some sort of moments than others. But it is the case that last term. Um, you know, a bare majority, five justices held that partisan gerrymanders are non-justiciable, right? P- present a political question. And thus, this is after years of kind of wrestling with this question of whether uh, courts might be able to police, you know, excessive use of partisanship in drawing legislative districts. So, so this court has certainly shown itself willing to, and even in a, you know, charged and divisive and high stakes case uh to decide to sort of you know decide that something presents a political question so yes i think there is uh every reason to believe i think there's a possibility that that's uh, what they're going to do and you're certainly right i think that whenever they inject into a case a question or an issue that the parties themselves haven't seen fit to brief um there's a real chance that that's what that's the sort of way they're thinking about analyzing or resolving the case but i mean i'm going to be really interested in seeing how the briefs um argue, you know, this political question um, issue. You know, so DOJ, which is not representing the president in this case, but has filed briefs on the side of the president, um, is going to have to take a position. And, you know, it hasn't in this litigation so far on this, you know, whether these cases present a political question. And, uh, you know, I think that the Solicitor General's office has, you know, I think been more political in this administration than it typically is. Um, But, is supposed to just do its sort of best analysis of the law. And I think it's difficult to read the political question cases and see how this case presents a political question. And then as we were just talking about, it's not totally clear how the president's interests um, are advanced, if they are in fact advanced by a finding that this case presents a political question um, because of this voluntary compliance possibility. Um, Right. You know, so because if they reach the merits and they find for the president, they say it's not a political question, but we do find that these subpoenas were invalid uh, because, you know, the president gets some special solicitude or the committee's, you know, stated purposes for asking for these records were pretextual. They were really trying to investigate the president in an improper fashion. Those are the arguments the president's lawyers make. If the court does find that, then, of course, the president does win and the records don't get produced. So in some ways, you know, you can imagine the, gaming this out such that the president has a cleaner win um, if the court reaches the merits and finds for him than this kind of potentially murkier political question holding. So I think there are going to be very difficult strategic decisions for the you know, all the parties to make in in terms of what to say about the political question doctrine in in their briefs.
0: Well, that's interesting. I I, I think this leads us to another question um, from from our listeners. Uh, Patty, what, what was that one?
1: They're they're asking if it muddies the judiciary's ability to come to a clear conclusion when DOJ inserts themselves into these civil cases in various ways with opinions, memos, when Trump is being privately represented and objecting to many subpoenas in his personal rather than professional capacity.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important question, right? As I said at the outset, this is not a case in which DOJ is representing the president. He has private lawyers. um, And yet there's a long tradition, and this spans, you know, Democratic and Republican administrations, of certain kinds of cases that seem to implicate the institutional interests of the president um, will still sort of, you know, by custom and practice, entail some filings by the Justice Department. So, you know, I actually think it's probably helpful for the court to get a more institutionalist perspective from DOJ. And now, look, as I said before, I think there has been a heavier dose of politics in the Solicitor General's office in this administration than has historically been the case. But it is still the case that the SG is going to take sort of a broader and more institutionally focused view of these questions than the president's private lawyers. Um, And so I think that on balance, it's probably helpful to have that perspective as opposed to just this kind of zealous advocacy of the president's private lawyers, um, you know, on the one side and then um, Congress, right, seeking to, you know, sort of have its prerogatives vindicated. On the other side, you know, I, I think it's probably actually a helpful perspective, although I understand what seem, the sort of the the kind of the suspicion or frustration that seems to sort of motivate the question, which is these are, you know, government lawyers and taxpayer dollars, and should they really all be expending resources, um, defending the pres? What feels like, um, you know, a project that there's no real question because the president wouldn't have to do anything for these subpoenas to, you know, uh, produce. The documents that they seek, like the president doesn't have to comply, doesn't have to perform, doesn't have to do a thing, right? Again, these are third party records, Um It feels like maybe a misuse of public resources to defend the president's prerogative to keep these documents private, when, of course, the only reason any of these issues um, have really arisen is the president's decision, right, during the campaign in the early days of his administration not to disentangle himself from his private business activities, right? That's, I think, what sort of underlies uh, so much of this.
0: So, Kate, you had raised the point earlier that this question has only been presented by the court in um, the suit that involves the congressional subpoena so if the court goes in this direction in that case but obviously uh, you know let's say it does not in in it does not uh, go in the political question direction in the other cases what would that look like
2: so you know it's the the, the Manhattan so and and I think there's no real Prospect of the court deciding that the New York case presents a political question because it wasn't an issue below, and the court actually didn't seek briefing on that question in the New York case. So, so say the court decides right that the congressional subpoena cases are non-justiciable, they present a political question, and the court simply can't uh, resolve the dispute. Um, you know, I think it still has to reach the merits in these uh, in the case that you know arises out of this Manhattan uh, grand jury subpoena, um, and there, I think. The argument that the president's lawyers uh, have made is not a very strong one. I mean, so the Second Circuit opinion, um, and I was at that oral argument um, and the opinion was issued very quickly after. But it's a really thorough um, opinion. And it simply, you know, it, it says things would be different if the president were being asked to do anything right. Every, you know, the. There's an important need to be respectful of the president's time and prerogatives. But there's no argument that these documents are subject to any kind of privilege. There's nothing that is required of the president. Um, And, you know, the two big sort of precedents here um, are the Nixon tapes case from... 1974, and Clinton v. Jones uh, from 1997. And those are both cases, I mean, they're they're different in certain respects, right? Well, first, neither involves Congress, so they're very different from the congressional cases. Um, but even from the Manhattan uh, DA case, you know, Nixon involved a grand jury subpoena for Oval Office tapes. Uh, Jones involved a uh, civil lawsuit in federal court. Um, but in both cases, the kind of general argument um, that the president made was that, you know, the ordinary sort of legal processes just didn't apply to the president or didn't apply to the president while he sat in office. Um, and in those cases, even though things were actually required of the president, right, that the president in, you know, the Jones uh, civil lawsuit had to actually sit for depositions. The president's team had to actually produce oval office tapes in the Nixon litigation. In both of those cases, even though, again, Personal performance was required, required by the president. The Supreme Court unanimously ruled against the president. Um, so in this case, where nothing is required of the president, um, there's just some generalized interest in, you know, having his financial records remain uh, secret. Whether um, There really isn't any doctrine to support any kind of presidential privacy privilege. It's just there's no law that sort of supports the existence of such a privilege. Um, it feels as though this case is an even stronger one from the perspective of the you know subpoena, from the perspective of the grand jury than Nixon or Clinton. And I think this case seems to follow very naturally uh, from those cases. So I think that if the court is doing a fair reading of what the precedent stands for, it's really hard for me to see the president winning this case. Now, look, there's a slight difference in that this is, a you know, it's a state Entity, it's a grand jury, and the argument that the president's lawyers are making is, you know, there's hundreds of jurisdictions; they could all be issuing uh, subpoena, grand juries, and all of them could be issuing subpoenas to the president. It would, you know, and to the president directly, that would, you know, make it sort of difficult for him to perform his duties, and all that might be right, but none of nothing in this case would actually d- distract the president from his official duties, and so I think that the court could easily write a very narrow opinion saying, you know, we're not going to decide what the sort of the bounds of, you know. Potential prosecutions that might touch on presidential activities are, but this in this very narrow case where the president doesn't have to do anything, and we're not even talking about you know an indictment of the president or prosecuting the president or anything like that. All that would be far down the road. In this case, these you know financial institutions have to comply with a subpoena. Simple as that.
0: Wow, that's interesting. So, well, you know, that would I think mean that this issue of whether or not there's a political, whether or not the court finds that. The the issue that's presented in the congressional subpoena case is, in fact, a political question. May really end up being a moot point.
2: Potentially, I mean, look, I, I'm telling you what I think the best reading of the law is on the New York cases. It could well be that you know five justices disagree with me and find that you know the 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 argument that the president's lawyers are making that you know these local. You know, investigative or prosecutorial entities have to at least sort of meet some heightened standard when it comes to the president. The president isn't any ordinary person, and so if any you know if a grand jury or a prosecutor is seeking documents that involve the president or invest involve investigations into the president or his activities, they have to make some heightened showing of need, and they have to show they've exhausted all of their avenues and. They, you know, Sivan's the Manhattan DA, just hasn't done that here. So, you know, you can imagine five justices agreeing with that and, and um, you know, sending the case back to the lower courts um, to take another look. You know, because that's another potential way you could see this case being punted, but not on political question grounds. Is just to say the lower courts applied the wrong standard and some degree of sort of special solicitude. When the president is involved, is appropriate. So lower courts take another look and see if that standard is satisfied, and uh, you know that would just kick the can down the road until presumably you know well after the November election.
0: Yeah, that would be an, quite a quite an interesting uh, result and one that would not surprise me. Well, I've got to say, Kate, um, that you know a lot of our listeners, I think, have. You know, had their eyes open about how the legal system works over the last few years. They had this notion that subpoenas are always responded to immediately, that uh, when there's a violation of the law, it's always enforceable, it's always, it's usually always criminal, I think, in their mind. And I think a lot of people have learned that that isn't quite the case, that it's a little bit more complicated than that. It's certainly, I think a lot of our listeners have been concerned about the enforceability of congressional subpoenas, and you—you you talked earlier about the the powers that Congress has to try to compel uh, compliance with the subpoenas. Do you think that that more needs to be done to strengthen Congress's authority to ensure compliance with its subpoenas?
2: Yes, I mean, I—I I, I think I do. I, I mean, I think that traditionally, you know, well, so until about nineteen, you know, thirty-five, I think is the last time that Congress um, actually imprisoned anyone for uh, contempt of Congress for failure to comply with one of its subpoenas. But, you know, once upon a time, right, Congress really did send its sergeant at arms to arrest individuals, to hold them... um, you know, in uh, the more recent cases, I think involved like a hotel near the Capitol, but they're, what you know, in the basement of the Capitol uh, once upon a time. Um, I don't think anyone really thinks a return to that kind of regime um, is appropriate. And, you know, it's certainly in the case of an executive branch official who's not in compliance, uh, the specter of like a standoff between congressional law enforcement agents and executive branch law enforcement agents isn't something that anyone wants to see. Um, and in any event, the executive branch clearly, I think prevails in, in, that, in that kind of a standoff. Um, but, but, I do think that you know there has been some so so that's you know one way Congress can actually do sort of you know use its inherent inherent authority to enforce um, its subpoenas um, but you know the other two things that it has done is it has you know gone to court itself to sue to compel uh, compliance with its subpoenas, and there's a school of thought that says that Congress should never have actually sort of set down that path and um and at any in any event it should sort of cease doing that now, right, having done it um, uh, sort of, you know, mistakenly for some decades, uh, in that it seems to cede all of this authority to the courts, right? When Congress sort of goes to court to seek to enforce subpoenas. It is sending a message that it lacks the authority to simply enforce its subpoenas itself. Um, And the other route that Congress has used to enforce its subpoenas is executive branch enforcement, right? Essentially, um, to have the Department of Justice enforce its subpoenas. And of course, uh, DOJ, again, in a policy that now spans both Democratic and Republican administrations, has taken the position that it will not enforce subpoenas against executive branch actors. And I presume it would agree that it would extend that Position if it were asked to say, enforce a subpoena. So, say the court kicks the congressional subpoena cases in, you know, Mazars and Deutsche Bank. If the committees were to ask the executive branch to enforce their subpoenas against these third parties, I presume that the executive branch would say, no, you know, our position that we're not going to enforce against the executive branch also encompasses a refusal to enforce in these circumstances against third parties. Although I don't know that they've taken that position previously. Um, but in any event, whether it's, you know, whether it's, using the executive branch or using the courts to enforce its subpoenas there is um, both a symbolic and a practical effect of doing that which is to basically concede that you lack the authority to enforce the subpoenas uh, yourself and and that's why I say that you know it, it uh, when Mazar early in the, Mazars early in this litigation suggested that it was you know willing to comply with the subpoenas um, that's, you know, historically the way third parties have responded to congressional subpoenas for the most part is they have, you know, unless there's some legal argument that they um, don't have to comply. And I don't think that um, Mazars at least believe that it had any legal argument. And I mean, you know, the other sort of practical point I'll make is that um, these financial institutions are regulated, obviously, right by statute and, and by regulations. And so, but um but I would presume that they would be Uninterested in getting on the wrong side of the congressional appropriators and overseers um, by simply refusing to comply with the subpoena. If, in fact, again the courts stay out of it, such that there just is this subpoena out there that they, you know, will be responsible for deciding how to respond to. Um, But so that's a long answer. But yes, I I think that Congress has ceded some of its authority, but that even without any kind of Sort of structural reform, there are ways for it to reassert its authority um simply by sort of declining to do what it has too often done in recent years, which is basically look to another entity to enforce its edicts rather than attempting to do so itself
0: interesting yeah i'm i 'm very interested to see whether or not. After uh, the Trump presidency, whether there's going to actually be reform uh, or whether people are going to very quickly move on to new topics and problems. I've noticed how quickly we've all moved to, you know, the pandemic as our uh, problem to your. I wonder if the same thing will happen after Trump leaves office.
2: Well, from the perspective of history, for whatever it is worth, you know, post Nixon, um, there were actually a you know a, a meaningful round of things like ethics reform, campaign finance reform. So, so it certainly is the case that, sort of, in the wake of a scandal laden presidency, legislative action, you know, at least sometimes does follow. So, I wouldn't be surprised if we see. And I'm not exactly sure the topics um, on which we would see, but I think that one of the big uh, takeaways of the last three years has been, you know, how kind of norm-governed, you know, the practice of the executive branch has been, and that there are spaces where, you know, kind of formalizing into law some of what was once subject simply to kind of norms and practices um, would be a good development. And so, and and I don't imagine that that's going to fall away, you know, based on intervening developments, but I suppose you never know.
0: Wow. Well, Kate, uh, uh, a lot of our listeners, I'm sure, have enjoyed uh, hearing a lot of your wisdom uh, today. I certainly have. Uh, And I know you have your own podcast uh, called Strict Scrutiny. Can you tell us a little bit about what that podcast is about?
2: Oh, sure. Well, th- thanks for um, giving me a minute to to, to plug it. Um, yeah, it's a podcast that I co-host um, with two other law professors, Leah Lippman and Melissa Murray, and a practitioner, Jamie Santos. Um, and we do most weeks, you know, every every week or every other week, deep dives on basically cases pending before the Supreme Court, but also kind of the legal culture that surrounds the Supreme Court and sort of the law more broadly. So we do a lot of pretty dense doctrine, but we try to also do kind of court culture and keep it pretty fun and irreverent. At least that is our hope. So if people are interested in the Supreme Court and the justices and some of these questions of the separation of powers and presidential power, um, you know, we, we, we cover those topics and, and we have a lot of fun doing it.
0: Wow, that's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Kate. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I, I was great. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast Go to your app and review the podcast and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic.